where I really struggled with the, the showman in me struggled hard with the ninth step. It was going to be this, this event, this showcase that I would put on and how I was going to present myself to this individual and, you know, how I was going to right all the wrongs and, yeah. you know, I was going to win the day, you know, yeah, yeah, by yeah. making this amend. And it did not go that way. It's so deep and so emotional, especially when yeah. you're, when you're facing someone that you love so much. You don't walk away from that winning. Hey folks, welcome back into this edition of How's That Working For You? I'm Art Wimberly, host of the podcast, person grateful to be in long-term recovery. And uh, I study and use the Enneagram in my own growth and for those in recovery and just in life in general. And today, uh, we've got in the studio with us, Mr. Colin Harris. Good morning, Colin. Good morning, Art. Yeah. How you doing? Great. Doing good. Thanks for coming in on a rainy Monday morning. Uh, as always, we are going to talk today to our guest, and we're going to look at life through the lens of recovery. And a little bit of Enneagram work today, as Colin is new to the Enneagram. And um, I've known Colin for, gosh, what? Uh, two and a half, three years now, as you came to Birmingham. That sounds about right. Right. Back to Birmingham. Back to Birmingham. Back to Birmingham. And we had a kind of a chance meeting, and, and then we got connected, and we realized we had a lot of commonality with recovery and so many things that we were efforting to do. And all along the time, the last couple of years, uh, as I've observed and watched you, I kept thinking, yeah, is he an Enneagram 3? <laughs> And then my wife, Carrie, who you know well, and and y'all do a lot of collaboration uh, work together, really good work in Birmingham. And Carrie kept saying, oh, yeah, he's a three. He's a three. So I said, well, we're not going to tell him, and let's see if we can figure it out. And so recently you actually did an Enneagram profile. I did. And what did you test as? Type three. Type three. Type three. And you told me, I think, that uh, after you'd done it, you were kind of interested in it and fascinated, and you started reading some stuff to your wife. Right. Yes. Yeah. So you you sent me the the um, the link online. I yeah. took this test, and and I'm I'm actually down at the beach with my with my wife and her family, and and my wife's sitting across the room, and I, I get the results. I'm reading them. I'm like, I don't know. I kind of kind of fits. I'm like, honey, honey, let me read this to you. Tell me if you think this is uh if this is me. And I, I read it, and she kind of gives me this look of like, did you did you really have to even ask me that? <laughs> like. Yeah, she's like, honey, you it hits the nail on the head yeah. for sure. Isn't that interesting how some folks close to us can see much more precisely some of the they we might know some of it about our personality, but there's a lot that we're not quite sure of it that we miss. And then when you start doing something like this and digging in and even taking a test and you're reading these attributes, the high side and the low side of the three. And those people that know us go, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the problem is. That's you, right? Oh, for sure. I, I don't. You, you, you'd be able to answer this better than I. But I, I, does that, is that tend to be the case yes. with most types? Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It varies. Uh, a lot of times, people will find their type, okay, uh, and they don't like it because the at the the lower side, the less resourceful uh, parts of that type is what they're kind of attaching to, mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, I don't want to be that. Okay, and some will be they figure their type out because they actually can match up to some of the more high side, the more conscious, resourceful attributes of the type. And they're like, oh, okay, that's kind of nice. Yeah. But almost everybody genuinely misses a lot of it, and it takes somebody else around us to be able to go, oh no, that's you. That's you in both high and low. 
That's yeah. how I experience you. Does that, does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. It's really what solidified it for me is getting somebody else's opinion, especially my wife, somebody who knows me more intimately and better than anybody else. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think what, what really stood out to her and me was was a, a piece in there about winning, about being competitive. Um, yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. For some reason, my whole life, I've always it said something along the lines of um, that uh, the type three doesn't want the game to end without them winning. Oh, at least I, once. I, I got to tell you this story. I, I, people, some people know me around here in Cary, and our first grandchildren were quadruplets. Okay, so we started Gosh. in a big way, and they and they lived with us for the better part of three years. We helped raise them for about three years with their mom and dad, and uh, one of them. Uh, from the beginning, about six months. Now, remember, we got four infants coming into our home. Bless your heart. And yes, yeah, so I was living in our what used to be our dining room. Okay, that was the down. My wife said that's the downstairs staging area. You, she's a one, so you'd have to know the whole thing. But from the beginning, six months, seven months, eight months in, you're looking at four souls, four unique human beings. But we we know what their nature was, right? We got the, the DNA. We got that down, right? No, no question about that. And we know what their nurture is. They've all lived in our home in the dining room for four you know so we we kind of got that track but you could see the uniqueness come out in those children like just like that it was crazy and and so we noticed something about Catherine ann from the beginning was that she was going to be in charge and she had this energy that was trying to always create and force things into being and she co-opted her brother and two sisters all the time trying to make everybody fit and I remember we were playing a game one time when she was six with with her brother and sisters, and some of us were playing this little board game. And it was getting down to the end. It looked like she wasn't going to win. And she kept pushing it and kept trying to figure ways to keep it going and going. And finally, miraculously, she won. And she jumped out of the chair into my arms and grabbed me. I thought she was going to stay, and she whispered in my ear. She was trembling. And she said, I'm so glad I won, Pop. And I'm like, Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. So that's what you're describing. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Got to figure out a way to make the game or the task or the job or the appearance of something go long enough to where I'm the winner, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's uh, it's not even just with games. Uh, for a large part of my life, it's been every facet of my life. And I, I've, I've, I've had this this extreme desire to come out on top. Yeah. Um, hasn't always worked out for me very well. <laughs> we're going to talk about that because yes. that took some turns <laughs> for did. you. Right? Well, uh, people probably by now know if you're sitting in this chair, you probably got a recovery story, right? Very much so. And and we have a tagline here. It's kind of we're looking at life through Enneagram and recovery. We're looking for some help, some hope, and some humor. Okay. So hopefully we'll have some of that today. I think so. Yeah, let's go back then and uh, tell us how you got to even be in the chair across from me in terms yeah. of recovery story. Yeah, so I, um, I'm, I'm from Montgomery, Alabama, originally, uh, born and raised there. Um, you know, I, for all intents and purposes, had a phenomenal childhood. Uh, I have two incredible parents, Was come from a, a fairly well-to-do family, was given anything and everything I could possibly ever want in life. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't share. A lot of people have that, you know, part of their story is a, is a tough childhood, a mm -hmm. trauma that came from that. It's not a part of my story. Uh, and it took me a long time to realize that it didn't have to be a part of my story. Exactly. Uh, I, I dug and dug and dug and tried to find something for years. Couldn't find it. Just not there. Um, 
you know, what, what, what does resonate with me is, is as I was growing up having this um, extreme sense of, of not feeling like I was a part of, that I didn't fit in. I was actually talking to you about this before mm-hmm. we begun, that I, it's funny, I feel like from people looking from the outside in, they would have said, they wouldn't have understood that. What do you mean you don't fit in? You've, you've got all these friends, you seem to be great around them. And But if I, I really look back, I had all these different friend groups. In Montgomery, there's a, a um, a lot of private schools in Montgomery. I went to a private school in Montgomery and, and I had this group of friends that were all very different from each of these schools that I would just uh, blend in with and be whoever I felt like they wanted me to be and uh, always wanted to be the life of the party. And that was that was being successful to me. It was everybody liking me and, and coming to me for the good time. That's interesting. Can I ask you a question? Do you think you were conscious of that at the time? How much you were able to often the the word applied to threes is chameleon like. They mm-hmm. can kind of be whoever, wherever they are to fit in and to look like a winner, achiever, performer. They can unconsciously adapt like that. Do you think you were very aware of it at the time? I, I looking back, I was not only aware of it, I took pride in it. Wow. I took a whole lot of pride in that, that I could I could be whatever I wanted to be uh, and that I could be that at a great level. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, it was I'm trying to figure out what the word I'm looking for. It was, I thought I was very, very, very successful in this, but was yeah. not, was headed in a totally different direction. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that revolved around drugs. Uh, I mean, it, it started you know, around 14, 15 with, with drinking, and then that quickly turned into smoking weed. And um, in, in high school, towards my junior year and senior year, started messing around with prescription pills. Um, so, and, so at the time, at the beginning of the use, would you say it was more primarily about this fitting in yes. and adapting and, and being yeah. this and that for not so much. I got to get high or I'm depressed or I got to cover this up or it's more, was it more social to fit? It was more social and recreational. Okay. Gotcha. Um, that was, that was really all it was. It was, um, it was to fit in. It was to be the life of the party. It was to have a good time. It was to experience new things. Uh, it was, it wasn't until after high school and I got into college that, that things really took a turn. And it, it was, that was when I discovered opiates. Uh, okay. Originally went to Auburn. Things didn't. Well, see, there's your problem right, right? there. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. know. I, I, I eagle, mean. War Eagle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> then, we, uh, Ronnie, we'll have a prayer session for him. Later. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. And, you know, it, it, I carried this having to be a, you know, a certain person into school. I had to be in this certain fraternity that was the, you know, the elite guys, the best of the best who, yeah you know, had the best parties and had the most fun. Uh, That did not go well for me. I I did not focus on school whatsoever, did not really attend school at Auburn. Mm -hmm. Um, And I started messing around with selling drugs to pay for these habits uh, of partying and living this life of excess. Were you pretty good at that? I was fairly good at it. Right. Yeah, I was fairly good <laughs> the at it. The achiever performer came yeah, about, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, but, but yeah. probably too good at it because I was yeah. I was successful until I wasn't. And yes. the police called on, and, and then it, it just was, was not a good situation in Auburn. So I, uh, to me, I looked at, at Charleston, South Carolina, as this promised land. Hmm. For some reason, if I could make it to Charleston, everything would be okay. All these problems that I'm What having, was it about Charleston? I have no clue. Looking okay, back, okay. you know, uh, I have uh, no clue. It uh, was a, uh, you know, it's a it's a 
fun city. I still love Charleston. There's a lot going on there. It's great food scene, music scene, bar scene, the whole nine yards. It's on the water. You got beaches, you know, nearby. So that's where that's where winners would live. Right. right? That's yeah. where the winners. There would you live. go. You okay. know, I just had that feeling. Uh, so I uh, I moved to Charleston and and once again you know went to get into school and and didn't didn't focus on that whatsoever it was i was going up there to have a good time really mm-hmm. um, wherever you go there you are wherever i go and and i had this you know uh, any time i got around people and they were using some type of substance it didn't matter what it was i was i was i wanted to fit in i wanted to be a part of this and somewhere along the way i, I came across um heroin and and that was that was kind of all she wrote for me um the first time i did heroin it was it was like i found my calling in life yeah as that my son said, we've shared his journey on here before. My oldest son said the same thing. The first time a, a, a hit of opiate, he said, "This is what life's supposed to be like." That, that, that's what I had been yeah. looking for. That's yeah. the feeling that I had been trying to. So now we're shifting years. from uh, what started out as this is a way to socialize, fit in, be seen, eventually to be successful at right. Mm-hmm. And now it's there's a shift here that's fixing to take you out of control. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very okay. much so. I mean, that was the 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 feeling of 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 that incredible feeling that I was searching for in trying to be the life of the party and trying to be loved by everybody and trying to be who everybody wanted me to be. Um, heroin gave me that feeling a whole lot quicker and a whole lot easier. Much more efficient. Much more efficient. Right. Um, yeah. And and that was I was I was off to the races from there. At that yeah. point, nothing else mattered. Yeah. Um, I would do whatever it took to get the next. So the you day. may be what medical experts seem to think now is that there's a certain subset of the population in any given generation that genetically is predisposed to an opiate addiction. In other words, you could be a user prior to that and an abuser. But once an opiate hits the bloodstream, it's like, okay, that was it. That's the one. And there's some people that are just made that way where that's going to be. There are some people could take an opiate and it's just nothing. And it makes them sick or just right. That makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. it does wholeheartedly. I mean, those people baffle me. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like I can't wrap my head around that. Yeah. Um, You know, for me, it it, it gave me everything that I was looking for. and, and and that began this journey of um, of in and out of treatment. Um, it it didn't take long for me to completely crash and burn once I, I got onto the to the opiate train. Um, you know, I I I didn't didn't stay in school in in Charleston. Um, quickly, did, did you start with heroin as as far as the opiate track? So I had, you know, before that I had messed around with some prescription opiates here yeah. and there. Um, but it, it never, never developed in anything that uh, a lot of it has to do with, um, um, accessibility. Yes. A lot of it had to say. do with accessibility. I, I know my son would say the story in, in college was, uh, chasing pills all the time. Yes. Finally, somebody says, why are you doing that? Why are you spend that money and time chasing pills? Let me show you something. Yeah. 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 I, it was, you know, you, you'd have some, um, prescription opiate pills. You'd find a few of them. You take those and, oh, well, you had a good time and, and that was it. You weren't going to find any more. Uh, but in Charleston, when I, I found heroin, I now had this steady connection to heroin. And as long as I had money, I would be able to continue to do heroin. Um, and that was what I did <laughs> and did whatever I had to do to get the money uh, in order to continue to do heroin. Um, along the way, it, it 
it quickly ramped up. And so my family found out about it. And, um, you know, that, that was my first trip to treatment shortly thereafter after that. Well, how long ago was that? Would you say roughly? That was, I want to say that was 12 years ago. Okay. Yep. 12 years ago would have been my, my first time going to treatment. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and that was, uh, that was, and I'll get back around to this because uh, he's this guy's a, becomes a fairly important part of my story. I went to a place in Atlanta, um, and that program was in in Cumming, Georgia, actually. And John Gianetto, my my partner at Birmingham yeah, Recovery Center, yeah. uh, had just gone through that program. Uh, was now working there as a night tech, and that was where we became friends. And years later, reconnected into yeah, Birmingham Recovery yeah, Center. Yeah, we're we'll going to tell that talk incredible about story. Eventually. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you went to rehab, everything was great from then on and straight up from there and you were exactly, the winner and yeah. no problems, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And hit the nail on the head. Not um, so much. Huh? No, no, not at all. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've told my story a number of times and usually when I get to this point, it's, 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 I'm fairly quick about it because it's such a blur. Uh, I was for about a solid, almost decade at that point, I was in and out of treatment, in and out, in and out, in and out, um, you, you name it in the Southeast, I probably went there. Um, you know, to the credit of my family, my family was always there in a way. They were always supportive and loving, um, definitely fed up at times, but my family never gave up on me somehow throughout this entire process. Um, what were some of the, what you look back now, you and them, because we, I've heard them speak before too, what would you say are two or three things where you would go, okay, that not only did they love me and support me, but they were able to draw lines in certain ways. What what would be some healthy things you can remember them being able to do, even as they still loved and were for you? You know, my parents, they, like I said, they were, they were always there. They were all supportive. They never didn't answer the phone. Um, they would always pick up the phone. They were always there to help me as long as it was to – for me to go get help. Okay. Uh, you know, they, they very quickly got to a point of, you know, they're, they're not sending any more money. We're, we're cutting the money off. Yeah. So um, that was something they've adapted fairly quickly, fairly to. quickly yeah. to the, to the money. Uh, you know, and my, look, my parents will, will, will say it today and they're, they're very involved in my life and the things that I do now. Um, they, they, wish they had gotten to some of those harder lines quicker. Okay. Um, yeah. I, you know, that seems to be the journey with most people. I know it yeah. was for Carrie and I. We can look back now and go, why didn't we do that quicker? Why didn't oh, yeah. we understand? But, uh, you know, the truth is nobody grows up, gets married, and has children thinking they're going to need to have this knowledge. True. And, yeah. you know, I'm a, I'm a fairly new parent myself. We have a four-month-old right now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I think I look back now. I mean, there's – I can't imagine. I can't – imagine having to draw those hard lines in the sand and this is just four months into having our daughter um you know i would do absolutely anything in the world for her um i can't i can't imagine what my parents were going through having to make some of those decisions as far as you know whether that be cutting me off or sending me away again for the seventh eighth ninth tenth time um but and they, I can even see it's it's emotional for you right now. Very much so. Just thinking about those years, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, my my parents are I mean, to me they're 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 my heroes. I mean, they are incredible people. Um, gave me and my sisters everything we could ever ask for, uh, and then continued to give me that as far as help. 
um, after I had stolen from them and taken from them and hurt the family and um, so on and so forth. They, they never gave up on me. Um, and it, it probably took them a little longer than it should have for them to start drawing some serious hard lines in the sand. Um, but they, they were just doing the best that they could, Yep. you know, like yep. all parents do. Yeah. We're doing the best we can with what we know yep. at the time. Yeah. So what, uh, well, what would you say was your bottom? Can you even figure it out? Or was there so many of them that they are all a blur? You know, it's, I, I get asked this question a lot. It's one of those, it's a tough question to answer. Um, you know, it's like, uh, when you, when you come out of treatment and, and somebody says, well, what's going to be different this time? Oh, I used to hate that question. <laughs> <laughs> I used to hate that question so much. Um, you know, there was, there was a lot of them. And actually when I finally, you know, got, got clean and sober into where I'm at today, things weren't as bad as they had been prior. Um, there had been some much harder bottoms. Uh, and, I, and what I do today, I tell people all the time that um, you, you don't you don't necessarily have to hit this this crazy hard rock bottom. It doesn't have to be that way. I don't believe that's, that's the a, case. It's a big shift in the last 15 or 20 years in, in this, if you want to call it a field of prevention and recovery, the idea, let's, let's see if we can raise the bottom. Right. Let's get off of that old idea. Yes. Well, they just want, oh, they're just not ready. They want more pain. They just, you know. Well, I mean, especially yeah. nowadays with the stuff that we're dealing with, a lot of people don't. They don't, they don't, they don't come out of that bottom. Yeah. I think that's a big point. I know some people would argue with us that, um, and there's no difference with this, the opiate situation as opposed to everything else in terms of ability to get out. But I think the preponderance of opiates and opioids over the last 20 years has really sat and, and then, then the ramp up in meth now again, yep, and yep. The fentanyl and, you know, I think it's really changed the equation. So I get, I get it. There's a commonality that's still there. Recovery is the same, but I do believe we're facing a little bit different animal right now. We are, yep. we are. And, and, you know, from that, there's so many things we're looking at as far as that goes, including MAT and, and the changes that are happening with that because of the, the different animal that we're dealing with now. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the CDC was, you know, saying the number one cause of death for people between the ages of 18 and 45 is fentanyl overdose. This, this is, that's the craziest thing. I, mean, I remember two years ago when they said the major cause, leading cause of death in the United States for under 50 was overdose. Yes. And I'm like, I misunderstood that. That can't be right. And no, number, that's right. And then number two is suicide. Yes. Number two is suicide. So which gotta, is which gotta, in many ways is tied back into addiction yeah. often, right? We got, a, we got yeah. a, a major mental health crisis in this country right yep. now. Yep. Um, but back to your bottom question, you know, I had been, been arrested 10 plus times. I, you know, was in a situation and a drug deal going bad here on 24th street and Southtown projects where I was shot in a drug deal going bad. Uh, that didn't do it for me. Uh, you know, there was, there was all these terrible things that happened. Um, it wasn't until my... My, my wife today, at the time my girlfriend, um, threatened to leave me, that that, that, was, that was a major catalyst for me. And, and as soon as she did that, I turned into recovery hard, turned into my sponsor and started putting a lot of effort into the steps. You know, was it, was it her and her alone? No. No, but it was, a, it was a piece of it that was, that was an event that occurred mm -hmm. that was uh, 
that that was going to be unacceptable for me. Yeah, I, know? I, I Carrie and I do work and facilitate help a support group for families here, as you know, and you come and spoke. But a lot of times we're we've been on this journey for twenty three years with multiple children, uh, but a lot of times I'll tell folks you just really don't know where the significant turn is going to come. Yeah, it's not predictable. Rarely is it predictable. Everybody's different. There's certain things we can do that help, certain things we can do to get out of the way as loved ones, but it's usually going to be somebody else or some other event that probably is going to be crucial when somebody finally figures out how to make the decision to really work at it. Does that make sense? A hundred percent, it makes yeah. sense. Uh, my, my big thing, especially I've, I've thought about this for the past probably eight months that I've, I've been continuously thinking about is it's not so much this this bottom or this bad event that has happened um not so much as is as finding a purpose or like a good thing that has happened that has come into my life um something that that's um created a will to live oh. it's created a desire to live wow. um i've been talking about purpose a lot lately because i feel like that was really what got me out of the cycle was figuring out what my purpose was. Now that purpose has shifted and evolved over time. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it may have been like I was just talking about, it may have been about realizing that, you know, finding this person that I consider to be the love of my life. That was a purpose for me for a little while. Mm. Um, you know, then it became about um, Birmingham Recovery Center or bringing treatment options to Alabama. It's been a purpose for a long time. Now I've got this four-month-old daughter. That is my highest purpose on this planet, wow. you know, in my eyes at this yeah. moment is my daughter. And I keep finding these purposes to keep on going, to keep, um, and keep driving me forward to keep wanting me to continue to work on my recovery, to continue to be better, to continue to be successful. Yeah. Uh, th yeah. those are the things that drive me now. It's not yeah. these, uh, these bad or terrible events or hard events that have happened. Um, been more so about what's what's my purpose going forward yeah. what am i here for yeah what's um, in the future what's in the why future? was i created yes where am i supposed to contribute yes yeah, yeah that's that's kind of where i entered your story right about that time right you had you had been sober for a while mm -hmm. and uh you and john which you will explain who john is had had come to birmingham and you had this drive and this vision and this plan that you were going to put together what has become Birmingham Recovery Center. Yes. Right? Yes. And I got to tell you the truth. I remember meeting you, hearing you, talking about we were connected. We did a little thing. Carrie and I did a Zoom kind of, or whatever. Yeah. And then I, then we, I met you on the street one day, and you're and I connected you to somebody, and we're talking. And every time you'd walk away, I'm going, man, I feel sorry for him <laughs> when, when this doesn't work out. <laughs> because you were, I mean, you were so positive. You were so driven. You knew what it wanted to be, and you and John were working hard toward it. And I thought, boy, he's going to be disappointed. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, you say that I think the type three of me. I heard that. A, I actually yeah. heard that a lot. I bet you did. There were a lot of people yeah. that were like, "Oh no, it's not possible. You can't do it. You yeah. can't do it." And the type yeah. three of me was like, I "Bet. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see." Yeah, uh, let, I could let, I could see that in you let, then before I even you. knew what personality type yeah. that you would have identified. But you could see it. That uh, nothing was going to get in your way. Whatever was going to get in your way, you were going to move it. Is yeah. what it felt like. Is that right? Yeah, you know. And there was there was a lot of personal stuff within that, as far as you know what we've talked about with me and the type three and and needing to succeed and wanting to achieve this this thing that that you know I look at is 
I had this perception of being successful around this. Um, but then there was this whole other aspect to it of, of a need, a yes. need for a facility yeah. in Alabama um, that offered good quality treatment. Yeah. Um, that was, was super important to me. I, I, I started trying to get clean and sober in Alabama a long, long time ago. And, um, you know, eventually went out of state and got clean and sober in Atlanta is where, where it all worked for me. Uh, but I, I love Alabama, love Birmingham, always wanted to come back here and felt that there should, should be another option. And, you know, like I, I say, uh, John, J, John Giannetto is our director of business development. He, him and I are the ones who we reconnected after years and, um, started piecing this together. He, he has some experience in the industry. I really didn't. I'm just a person in recovery. My experience was I, I went to treatment a lot of times. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I experienced good treatment. I experienced not so good treatment. Those two things exist. Yes. Um, but in the end, I'm, I'm, I'm a person in recovery. Our goal was to put together the, the best team of professionals that we possibly could in this area. And I think we've done that. And I think yeah. we've got a phenomenal person. Well, it's a beautiful synergy of a partnership because both of you are recovering from addiction, from substance use disorder. But as you said, he had more of the clinical experience and it worked in it. You said, I'm, I'm just a recovering addict, right? Yeah. But I suspect that that drive of that personality type combined with his experience and his clinical experience, and then that pushed y'all toward the ability to create something like, because you really brought it up out of the ground. We right? did. Yeah. We did. Um, you know, he's it, it wasn't like you joined in a work in progress. You guys brought it up out of the ground. We did. Yeah. We did. It was, uh, there was a lot of God things along the way, um, a whole lot. I mean, this thing, uh, as we kept getting into it and things kept falling into place, we're like, this is, this is supposed to happen. Um, the kind of things that, that we were running into don't just happen to anybody. We were able to get the whole thing up and going, um, in 10 months. Well, we got the whole thing. I know. I was months. amazed. I, I was amazed. And now we, we have 50 clients in our facility after a year. Uh, it's actually a year and just a matter of in like a week this, or so. This month. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. right. Uh, so that's been, you know, John, John's also my best friend. He's in long-term recovery himself. So I've got to do this with my best friend. Um, you know, a big thing, a big part of my, what I look at as success in recovery has been the people that I have surrounded myself with and my friends, actual real friends, not these people that I was trying to be a certain person for, or, um, you know, trying to impress or be the life of the party for, uh, these were people who saw me at my absolute worst, uh, stood by. You, you weren't succeeding. I was not, <laughs> I, I was, was not, not winning succeeding yeah. at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my wife stuck with me through some, some tough times. Uh, John stuck to me through some tough times. My family. Let um, me, let me tell you what you're, can I pause yes. for just, I want to describe yeah. something here for folks that may be interested in doing deeper Enneagram work, consciousness work, and maybe even especially those that would identify with, uh, the archetype of three. One of the developments of maturity for a type three is learning how to admit their failure in communal group and then beginning to understand how they were created to succeed, but that it's in the context of community. Does that make sense? Gosh. So you you were 
I, I, I was thinking to say you were lucky <laughs> in the, you had to do a lot, a lot of hard learning, but to get there, but in, there was this fortunate, you've done a lot of the threes work without knowing you were a three in the sense of returning to your essence and the way you're created. I believe that God creates those that identify with three, not as threes, but as people who are going to actually drive achievement and success in the world, but for the betterment of the community instead of their own glory. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And so without knowing, because you were in recovery and in community, right, compassionate, curious community, right, you are actually doing some of the maturing work that a three needs to go to, which is actually the humility of admitting I'm not winning, I'm not succeeding, I'm failing in front of people. Yeah. And it sounds like the fruit of that is now someone who's winning effectiveness, uh, succeeding is now for this bigger picture of the community and not to make you look good. That doesn't mean that some days you don't want to look good. I get that, yeah. right? There's still yeah. a, we're always fighting a little bit of ego as well. Does that make sense? For sure, it does. Yeah, you know it. It's making me a, a big, um, a big lesson for me was was realizing that I didn't have to have twenty, thirty best friends, you know, or these people that all love me. That I'm the. I just needed a few. Yeah. Three, four, solid, trusted. Everybody people. doesn't have to love me. Everyone doesn't have to yeah. love Big me. Big deal for you know? threes is affection, connection, esteem. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and, and today that what's important to me is is having that connection and having that that trust and that loyalty with, with just these few people. Um and being quote unquote successful for them, you know, showing up in their lives. For, for others um, for others yeah, uh cool and and for the you know the 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 birmingham recovery community as a whole means a lot to me yeah i've um, noticed that uh, even as you were successful getting it up and running in time i, did, I honestly just standing from the background we were for you but i didn't think you could do it that fast right yeah and um but e even with that what i've noticed is you have become a major part of the collaborative energy in this city around recovery well i love to hear that that was yeah. that was always a goal i've said it i don't even i've said it many many times that we don't want to be just another just another treatment center right. we want to be as much of a resource for the community as possible yeah so we've opened up we have a beautiful space we have this phenomenal yeah, used to be it, a wedding really and event venue yeah and so it's set up for events yeah so we wanted to open it up to the community to use yeah. whether that be for outside 12-step meetings or family support groups or sober tailgate events or whatever it's not just for our clients it's for everybody yeah. anybody can come up there and attend these things yeah um and that's been that has exploded too i mean there's some meetings up there that have 85 95 people in them wow um how's your um how's the family group going i know that was hard to get going it's 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 uh, it, I, I struggled with it in the beginning yeah. because it, it was taking it was it was Wasn't struggling very efficient there for there, a little bit bro. um but you know getting one of the toughest things that we do at, at, at BRC is getting buy-in from the families, which you got to understand is it was a very tough thing for me in the beginning uh, because my family was always, they were always there. They were always mm. showing up. They were always. So you were wondering in. why like, your why? clients' families might not be buying in at that same level. Why? Why? Why yeah. can't we get them to come? And right. it, it took our clinical director, um, Amy Rass and Colin, not, not every family was like yours. Yeah. 
they're not all like that. Yeah, plus your family had a lot of means too. My family right? had had means. They yeah. had the ability to help. Um, but they it's, you know, we've got people in our program, why can't we get their family to buy in, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and, and by buy in, tell me tell tell the listeners say, what you mean by buy when in. I say buy in, um, really just coming to the family sessions or um taking advice from the clinical staff or uh, going to the family support group, just being a part of their loved one's recovery. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of that it sometimes has to do with shame or the stigma or, or anger or <laughs> anger or fear right. or, you know, all of the above. There's so many reasons and, and our, you know, I just, I personally hadn't experienced it. Um, so through some, some teaching from our, some of our clinical staff and we, uh, I, I started to wrap my head around it, and then we worked out some things of just how to get them more involved. And slowly but surely, more and more people started coming. And what I saw, what we saw was that once we got a group of about four or five family members. Critical mass, yeah. Yes, once they became a part of that program and were emotionally invested in the family support group and were showing up, and even once their loved one had completed our program, they were still coming, um, then somebody – and we'll have a family member. It's like, okay, I'll go try it. They'll go. They're there. They see these other family members who are getting a lot out of this, yep. and then they buy in. And so awesome. it's it takes the lesson all that it takes other family members. Yeah, you know, it, it's yeah. us as just the clinical staff. You know, telling them, hey, right. you need this. Yeah, come do that. It's just like AA. You yeah, know, exactly. It's, it's exactly attraction like rather than promotion. Exactly. Right. The, uh, the whole idea that you typically listen more to the satisfied customer than to the paid salesman. Yes. Right. <laughs> Imagine yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> who knew? Right. And, and yeah. so since, since that, since we got a, a good core group, now it's evolved and has grown. And That's I think awesome. now there's like something like 17, 18, 19 people who continuously come to that and some trickle in and out. So that's really good. Um, now, one of the good. struggles I've seen over the years with, with loved one support, family support, whether it's parents, siblings, spouses, whoever it is that, that's coming for support of the person that's struggling struggling was the because it doesn't always have a 12th step give back to it it's the difficulty has been getting the loved one groups to replicate themselves does that make sense where where they let go of us needing to lead them and they can replicate is it so one of my goals is to help those types of groups replicate themselves where where they say, no, you know what? Now we're going to give back. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. It does. And it's, um, God, they're so important. It's the, I, I, the the family work that we do up there, I, I would say, is, is just as important, yep. if not in some cases more important than what we're doing with the clients a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's, we can directly, if we, um you know, the percentage of um, AMAs or ACAs that we have, people who, who leave, we can directly tie all those back to, for the most part, not enough family involvement. Yeah. Um, or just love when you When you use those so terms, much. you're talking about people that leave prior leave, against advice. Yes, that, yeah. that leave against advice. They yeah. leave our program early. Yeah. Um, we see a lot of times that have to do with, with there just not, not being enough family involvement. Yeah, well, yeah. A, and I, and I know you well enough to know right now you're not trying to say that out loud to blame family. No, uh, but but it is, you know, Carrie is executive director of the Addiction Prevention Coalition, yes. right? 
most of my work is on the back end. It's not prevention, it's recovery. But I believe prevention is recovery, and I believe recovery is prevention. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. So a lot of the work with family and loved ones is changing something not only for that person that's struggling, but also the family dynamic, which also prevents down the road, or at least probably lessens the chance that others are going to become and then it changes the whole system where everybody's a little bit healthier yeah does that makes sense it does yeah it does yeah. i mean you know we're it is i don't remember the last time i've met someone or spoke with someone who hasn't been affected by this disease in some way shape pretty direct fashion. pretty direct right very direct usually whether you're a parent or a spouse yes or a sibling or a buddy, right, or a friend, a fiancé, a loved one, whatever, most families don't escape it from a pretty direct connection. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I really don't remember the last time I, I met someone who, yeah. who hasn't experienced It's probably that. almost impossible now. <laughs> right? Right. I feel like it is. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, to me is why the work that, say, the Addiction Prevention Coalition does is so important. And the work that we do is important from, mm -hmm. like, our community standpoint, the family support group. It... Uh, it it's I can't even believe I'm still sometimes sometimes can't believe I'm still even using the word stigma. You know, it's just uh, yeah, it's yeah. so prevalent and it's everywhere and really the country as a whole with COVID and the pandemic and what we went through with that and we talked about the causes of death causes of death for eighteen and forty five um, that we're even still using this word stigma. Right. It's, it's it's everywhere. It's it really so is. prevalent. It really is. Um, which is why I feel like the work that's being done is so important. Yeah. I remember when I first got in recovery, we were trying to set up some systems. And one of the people we were reporting to in the system said, well, this is a great idea, but uh, Southern people won't talk about this. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay. And then I remember the next year I went to a training out in California and a speaker came from South America. And they said, well, you know, it's really hard to get the South American Indians to talk about this. <laughs> and then every year I would collect, there was some, there was a guy from Great Britain. He said, you know, Great Britain, UK, stiff upper lip. We don't talk about this. Yes, so I'm yeah. like, okay, wait a minute. South American Indians, Southern people, British people. Then later it was Asian people. And then later it was Jewish people. Nobody will talk about it. Then it's African-American. They won't talk. Well, somebody's talking about it. Yeah. And a lot of more people. And so this idea of uh, why are we still fighting stigma? But it's a reality. It is. Yeah. It is. Um, you know, I, I, I want to believe that it's better than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Obviously, definitely is. Uh, and I think we're getting there. But we still, you know, still have a ways to go. Yep. Yeah. I agree with you. Uh, but what you guys are doing, what a lot of the collaborations are doing, is trying to change the thinking and the language around that. It's important to keep pushing that mm -hmm. so that more people will feel like, if I feel guilty or shameful, I still can come forward in some way. There is a way to talk about this. Yeah. People do it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So tell us about, let's, we've been throwing out the term Birmingham Recovery Center. That was your dream, and that was your baby, and y'all got it off the ground, and you're celebrating your one-year anniversary. Describe more detail exactly what you guys do now okay, and what you're hoping to do in the future. Yeah, so we, uh, right now, Birmingham Recovery Center is a, is a, we're a strictly outpatient facility, so we have a few different levels of outpatient care. Um, 
we, like I said, we've got a beautiful facility right over kind of in it's gorgeous. In yeah. Thank yeah. you. I mean, it's really pretty cool though for sometimes when you go into recovery, especially to rehab, oftentimes, you know, it's, it's not like the prettiest, nicest, cleanest thing and that's okay, yeah. but it's kind of really cool for families and for those in recovery that can actually go into a really beautiful, nice, clean environment. It, it actually makes you feel like you're part of society again. You know, there was a few different thought processes behind it that, you know, one, that there are a lot of very, very nice residential places. So you, you go to these nice, comfortable residential facilities and you get out and you, you need to do some type of aftercare. It's important. It was important for me in my recovery. Um, you would, you know, you go to an outpatient facility and they typically, historically, have not been very comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're in a you know, a strip mall or an office park building and there's metal chairs. Metal folding chairs. Yes. Uh, Your back hurts by the time you leave. (laughs) Right. And you kind of feel like you're going backwards. Uh, We wanted people to feel like they're moving forward. By the way, folks, for those of you who are interested in a parent or spouse or family support group on Thursday night, we've got one. We have the best chairs in recovery. Oh, I love that. Oh, it's amazing. Y'all do have great They're chairs. They're awesome chairs. Yeah, I've been yeah. in those now, chairs. Now, if you're They're late, you, you got to take the cheap chair. But it, it, I digress. <laughs> Go ahead. Chairs. Yeah, They're good yeah, chairs. They're good chairs. Uh, you know, and, and at the at the same time, it, it um, I want we wanted it to feel comfortable, homey, uh, all the way down to the lighting. We went 2,400 Kelvin home lighting. Uh, not the, you know, fluorescent tube lighting. Um, it's, I wanted the, you know, the banker to walk in there and be like, okay, this is, this is what I'm used to. And I want the guy off the street to walk in there and be like, okay, these, this is the kind of place I can hang out now. You know, the, yeah. the, this is, I, I can do this. I can, you want a place that people want to go. Yeah. So anytime you walk into that building, you're generally going to hear laughter. You know, it's a serious thing that we're dealing with, but you, you got to, this has got to be fun. This has yeah. got to be a beautiful experience. Yeah. Recovery is tough enough and you got to celebrate. You got to, you, you know, got to laugh. Yes. You got to have humor. Yes. Yeah. Um, so everything that we, we currently do is outpatient. We got a phenomenal staff. We have six, uh, full-time licensed therapists. We've got two double boarded psychiatrists. Uh, they're both addictionologists and psychiatrists. Uh, they are both incredible, uh, Dr. Casey Paddock is our medical director. She used to be at UAB. She used to be at UAB. The The only qualm that I have with Dr. Paddock from a, from a business side is that she takes too long. Uh, <laughs> she cares too much. She cares too much. <laughs> you know, and I, we would never change that. Uh, yeah. She just, she said it from day one. I'm, I'm, I'm going to spend whatever time I got to uh, spend with each sweet. client. Yeah. Uh, and she's loved for that. People actually feel hurt by a doctor. Uh, and right now it's so hard to see psychiatrists. They're so busy. Yeah. Um, it's, it, she's been an invaluable member of our team. Um, so you, you would do what typically if people are looking for what might be called IOP, IOP, intense outpatient, right? So we are, we're also, we're the only PHP in the state of Explain Alabama. that. So PHP is partial hospitalization program, which okay. is a fancy insurance term for, for all day. Yeah. Outpatient. Right. Uh, so our, our PHP is Monday through Friday from nine to three, whereas the IOP is from nine to 12. Okay. So it's just a little bit more rigorous program. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our whole program is about a 90 day program and it's a step down reintegration type deal. We want people to, to step down to a lower level of care. We even have an evening IOP. We want people to go back to work. We want people to start experiencing the stressors of life while still being able to come to us for support. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah, almost like the theory of halfway house or three quarter way or so sober living in that. Okay, you're 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 reblending into full life life on life's terms. Yes, but you're doing it at a slower pace, and you can still do it while you live at home or maybe even are working, and you're trying to reintegrate. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, I, um, big proponent of residential as well. Yep. Uh, residential yep. is is something that is that is needed. It is a level of care. People need to get separated. They, they, that's just, uh, a lot of people need that. Yep. Um, yep. In, in my experience in going to treatment, I would, I would go off to a residential facility. I do great in treatment. <laughs> I did fantastic in treatment. I can you go. You were quite efficient. Dude. I'm going to, exactly. <laughs> you I'm won. Gonna, you were the winner. I'm going to. You get all the stars. Right. And, yes. Yeah. I got all of them and you know, I'm making everybody loves me and, <laughs> and I'm doing so good. Look yeah. how good I'm doing. I'm yeah. doing so good. And then I would finish. And I would just get picked up out of that bubble, plop back in my life. And it's just like, all right, you're, we taught you everything you know. You did great. You did yeah. so good. Good luck. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, no. Yeah. I don't, I'm not okay. Yeah. Uh, which is why we look at what we do at BRC is so important. Just to reintegrate. Just to still have some support. Cont- continue working on the things that you learn in residential. Yeah. But make your way back into life. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen a whole lot of success with that. That's great. It's been, it's awesome. been really good. And and an, another piece of, of why we love BRC being such a, a resource to the community and having so many groups up there is we want people to get plugged into that community. And if those things are going on up at this facility uh, where these people come to every day that they've gotten comfortable with, we've seen that they're, they're more likely to, well, let's go attend that CA meeting on Tuesday night. Yeah. Kind of get ingrained into that. Lay, layering their recovery. Because that's, you know, we were talking about that earlier, about, you know, community and finding those good friends that know you well, that know the real you. Yeah. Not just this successful winner type you're trying to promote yourself to be. Yeah. Um, and that, that's that's a lot of good stuff happens with that. That's great. Yeah. So uh, with the, um, I don't know how else to say it, the success of BRC so far, you have gotten, I, I don't know, you maybe had this idea for a long time about establishing another location in Alabama. You know, North Alabama has a big need. Yep. South Alabama has a big need. Yes. All of Alabama has a need. Yeah. All of it. Yep. Um, you know, you look at... Uh, you look at Georgia, you look at Tennessee, you look at Florida, you look at all these states around Alabama, they've got way more programs. Yeah, a lot of does. times people are being sent out of state and their insurance won't pay as much or any at all, and Correct. there's a trap there for some folks, right? But Correct. but there's uh, we just seemed – we have some good recovery in, in Alabama. We do. We do. But we do have a deficit, especially for a state that's as hard hit as we are. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, you know, we, we just we just have more of a need than we can fill. Yeah. at the moment yeah um but we, we we do have some good programs we just we just we need some more options uh especially in in in, in south alabama um there's there's really not a whole lot down there at all um but we we are looking to do something in the huntsville area okay. um and you know we we hope to do a residential down the road uh, okay. we, we we hope to give that option that's a hard sell in alabama not because it's not needed but uh, honestly just to be honest about it, the politics of it it's been tough, hasn't it? So it's a. Uh, you want to be careful here, don't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, his, you mean to say it? His, no, I'm not going to say it. Go, you go ahead. I mean, <laughs> historically, the, uh, the 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 COM process in the state of Alabama has been very political and litigious. Certificate of need. Yes, their certificate yeah. of need process has been fairly difficult. 
Um, Several people have gone to prison over it, actually. But that's okay. That's have, another story. Have, yeah, yeah. So, that is a whole other deal. <laughs> um, but uh, we don't want you to end up as a, a episode of American Greed. No, okay, no, so, no, no, yeah, no, no. Okay, I've, been, right, I've been to jail enough times already. Okay, you yeah, know, and yeah, my, been there, done that, life, got yeah. the t-shirt. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, it's it's something that we're we're looking at. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is that's, I'm assuming a much longer term. It is a much longer process. Process. Much, okay. much, much, much longer process. Um, yeah. But, but if I know most threes and most threes I know, they, they actually can take a long view, even if, even if they like to be really efficient, once they get a vision, they don't stop driving toward it normally. Oh yeah. Tell, tell me it's impossible. Yeah. Right. You can't do it. <laughs> Colin, you and John are never going to get this We're never going to do it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. right. Okay. Now I have to okay. be wrong. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's, on, it's public record, too. Ronnie, can you cut that part out? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Work with me here, Ronnie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So on the horizon is uh, looking in Huntsville, yes. North Alabama, trying to figure out if that's a play. You know the needs there, and that's your target right now, and you probably got the same laser focus you did here we we, we will open a facility in huntsville within a year <laughs> okay there we go yeah all right, good. Yeah. yeah yeah i wish i had some of that ronnie <laughs> i wish i had some. i like that yeah okay uh well ronnie you do know one of your integration points would be to the type three right as, as a nine you, you know part of you picking up that energy of the three uh, as you know, your value, you know, is what value? <laughs> what value? <laughs> what value? Yeah, I'll share, Ronnie. Yeah, I'll share. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so what? Let me ask you a question. Uh, I often ask this to people: like, do you have a favorite step of the twelve steps? Anything uh, excite you, or just like either from like, man, that was pivotal for me, or ooh, that excites me sometimes when I think about that. Yeah. Oh, that's a really good question. Um. I feel like this is this might be, uh, it'd be the ninth step. Okay. It'd be the ninth step. Ooh, okay, so making amends. Yes. Right, actually, the action step of going back out. Yes. Right, and then, and then doing what we can as far as it's up to us to repair and forgive, right? Yeah. Okay, so you've, I'm going to assume you've done some work on that as you went through recovery, right? Very much. But I know for me, the 12 steps have become like second nature, part of a lifestyle, right? Yeah. And so, uh, so are you thinking in terms of like when you did the ninth, or is it something that affects you now going forward? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about back when I when I made the majority of the men, in the beginning, right when I hit that ninth step, and and you know worked a whole lot with my sponsor with that. Um, that those were the, that that was just the most powerful step work okay. for me. Those yeah. events um, going back out, um, you know, especially with family. Yeah. Um, the amends that I made with family were, um, I learned, I learned so much about myself and those amends process, um, even more so than I did in the fourth and fifth step. And, uh, isn't that interesting yeah, because I've always said, I'm a little slow. Okay. <laughs> so I'd, I'd been in 12 step for a while, probably been through two step studies, long step study work with sponsor and I was like, okay, you do fourth, you know, fearless moral inventory, and then fits the admission and the sponsors. And six and seven is helping you spot the patterns, character defects, and then we're asking for them to be removed. 
And then it's like this whole new process starts. It's like, all right, forget that. Now we're going to make a list of all the people we've harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. I'm like, well, weren't we working on this? And it took me two or three years to figure out the trick was doing all that inner work then sent you back out to begin to do the repair work yeah. was actually going to have an impact on character defect. Does that make any sense? It does. It was. I mean, I was a little yeah. slow. I'm just a little slow. <laughs> I got a fairly decent mind, but I'm really slow about stuff like that. You know, like the and the one that sticks out to me from what we've been talking about with the type three, where I really struggled with the, the showman in me. Yes. Struggled hard with the ninth step. Cause it was a it was gonna be this this event, this showcase that I would put on and how I was gonna present myself to this individual and you know, how I was gonna right all the wrongs and yeah. You know, I was going to... I was even going to win at that. Win the day, you know, yeah, yeah, by yeah. making this amend. And it did not go that way, yeah. you know. Um, it was, you know, there, it's it's so deep and so emotional. and The brokenness. Especially yeah. when, you're, when you're facing someone that you love so much. That you've hurt so badly. Right. Yeah. There's... You, you don't walk away from that winning. You, you do not at all you um but you're wow. not you're not defeated either yeah you're we don't wish to close the door on the past yeah. to get it right isn't yeah. that beautiful there's there's no winning redemption or yeah in the in in, the, in those amends um that is that is crystal clear what you just that's a winner what you just said sorry <laughs> sorry no, no no that's really important yeah, there it's powerful yeah absolutely and it was what escaped me for at least a year or two doing the work was this was one of the ways all of that work of character defect spotting was actually going to begin to be dissolved in some way or removed in some way was by going back out and then forgiving and amending as much as I can. As you said, there's something deeply spiritual about that kind of a brokenness right there that you, it is a win, but you're not a winner. Yes. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, yes. That's beautiful. Love that. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, like I said, they were some of them were powerful. Some of them were, you know, um, for what I perceived to be a su- successful amends, they weren't that way. I mean, yeah. some of those, some of those I did, and they did, they didn't. It didn't go. Did not go well, <laughs> right? You know, and and that was okay, and I became okay with that. Yeah. Um, well, especially as a three affection, connection, esteem. Yes. I but I do the work of amends. I do it well, not perfectly, but well but it still doesn't go well from that outside look. You want to talk about breaking down some character defects there you and go. sitting in there that you go. for a while. Yeah. Uh, was, yeah. Was and, big, and, big. and learning to be okay with that, not detaching from it, but non-attachment to the outcome, but being okay with that trusting yeah. that this is the way it's supposed to be right now. It was a, a very good learning experience that I wholeheartedly could not have done without a sponsor. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Could I not. would have messed it up so bad. Oh, the, the, the theory or the, the myth or the story of, of Bill Dunn, and Dr. Bob in the, in the early groups was that they, the last part of the ninth, which is except when to do so would injure them or other, wasn't in there originally. <laughs> and so they kept screwing it up and they went back and added that part. And yeah. then the sponsor would have to, okay, you're not ready yet. Right. I remember my spot, I was ready. I thought I was ready. I'd written it, rewritten it, prayed over it, cried over it, changed it. And I went to him and said, I think I'm ready to go make this amends. He said, and he asked me a couple of questions. He said, you're not ready yet. 
you're gonna mess it up. I'm like, what? Wait, what? What? Come on. Yeah, and ready it, to go. but it's, let's go. It's all the work that goes in, even prior to actually making the amends. I think that has a big impact as well. Very much. Does that so. makes sense. Very yeah, much so. yeah. That whole absurd idea that somebody could ask me to slow down that long and detail my harms to others in that detail, and then it wouldn't kill me. I mean, I already had so much shame and guilt, right? And now they're gonna make me make a list of them. And I'm going to have to face those things. Yeah. And then I'm going to have to go back out in the world and do my best to amend, either in the moment or a living amends, right? Or or sometimes we don't talk about that other half of ninth is actually internal forgiveness, mm. right? Yeah. We, we focus so much on amending, but part of amending is forgiving too, right? Yes. But we're taught not to talk about that so much because it's about what we did, right? Yeah. Makes sense. So what was your experience of forgiveness for yourself? Uh, I, 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 that, that took a little longer for me. That's for most people, yeah. I think. Um, and, you know, I think there's even even three years later. Today is actually three years for me, actually. Yeah, right. that's today. Today? Today. What? Yes. High five. Right? Yeah. I don't have a chip. Yeah. No, I, no I'll big get deal. you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I think even, even I still continue to struggle with some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, of, you know, forgiving myself. Um, not near to the degree that I did, you know, two, three years ago. Well, I think it's an ongoing healing, don't you? It's an ongoing healing. Uh, I've said this many times. People get sick of hearing, but I remember early in recovery, a sponsor talked to me about. You, you have to tell your story 5,674 times before you're healed. He, he was being hyperbolic, yeah. right? But the point is, the more we tell the story in an honoring way, not in a prideful way, not in a, you know, uh, th that kind of way we can get away from us where we're kind of bragging about our past, but the more we tell it in a truthful, honest, hum humble way, there's a little more healing that comes with it each time. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. It does. Um you know, even, even doing this podcast, you know, I'll, I'll learn a lot from this. Absolutely. Um, if we're know, awake and conscious, we can learn from anything. Yes. Right? Even taking the, um, you sent me the Enneagram test the other day. I took the test. I got the results. I'm reading them. I'm still learning more about myself. I'm, I'm learning some things that I didn't, I had to ask my wife, Hey, is yeah. this me? What I'm reading? She <laughs> yeah. says, yes. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm looking at some of these things and I'm looking where, I'm looking at where some of my character defects have popped up in some of these things. Yep. And it's like, hey, look, this is stuff that this is possibly ingrained in you. Um, you know, these are things that uh, it's a slow, it's just continuously slowing to yeah. slowly learn, learning more and more about myself and forgiving myself for some of the mistakes that I've made. And it's just a, it's a, it's a process. It is. One of the things I've learned over the last decade is just how much insight Enneagram can actually give to a recovering individual in their recovery. And I don't mean just primarily by recovery staying sober. Yes, of course. Big key, right? Yeah. Right. But I mean more what the big book says about the emotional sobriety or inner sobriety that we begin to work through and it begins to peel away what's not us which reveals more of what is us, truth, beauty, and goodness. There's a way we were designed to bless the world uniquely. Bless it, not curse it, right? Not just be neutral to it. And the more we can do that inner work of self-awareness, the more some of that stuff that's not us can begin to melt away. Yeah. And what is us is going to bless the world. Does that make sense? Purpose. Yeah, purpose. Purpose. Yeah. For me, it all comes back to purpose, or at yeah. least it has lately. That's been a big thing I talked about earlier that I've just been digging into. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, I feel like this is sometimes 
could be a controversial thing that I talk about, but like the recovery job. If y'all are familiar with the recovery job, it's a, I would go to um, treatment or sober living in particular, sober living. And they're like, all right, you need to go get a, just a job, just any a job. recovery job, yeah. you know, a humbling, right. you don't have to like it, you know, yeah. just make, you know, however much an hour and right. not very good, you yeah. know, an hour and just, just, just do it. Just a job. Yeah. And I can't stand that. And I, I think it's a, not a good thing that we tell people to do. Um, now, some people, you, you just, you got to get a job, you got bills, you got to pay those bills. That's fine. My thing lately has been about at least go find something that you either want to do or you can have goals around that you can work your way up. I always use the example. I went to a place and they wanted me to go get a recovery job and I went and got a job as a barista at a Barnes and Noble cafe, like a Starbucks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, was I above being a barista? No, not even remotely above being a barista. It was probably a better job than I deserved at the time. But did I want to be a barista? Did I enjoy being a barista? No, I hated it. It wasn't for me. It was not, I didn't want to, I didn't want to work in, I didn't want to be a manager of a Starbucks one day. I didn't want to work in corporate Starbucks. I didn't want to work in corporate Barnes & Noble. It's just not what I wanted to do. That's not part of my interest. Um, And I... I, I hated getting up and going to work every day. I don't mm. care who you are. Work is a large part of what you do. Mm. You know, a lot of people don't like to look at that, but but what you do is a big part of who you are. Yeah, big part of your purpose. Yeah. Um. So my thing has has been lately, especially like with people that I talk to at BRC, it's at least go find something that like you can work your way up in, or that you can you can have a goal to you can have something to aspire to, something to achieve. You can develop a. You need to have somewhat of a purpose around what you do. Uh, at least for somebody like me, now, yeah. I should be speaking for myself. Yeah, yeah, I needed some. Yeah. Pur- I have found a whole lot of purpose in being, I guess, an entrepreneur. Like yeah. that is something that I have found a whole lot of joy and pride in. Um, and I suspect you were wired that way, right? Find something right. that makes you happy, though. You know, yeah. find something that you can enjoy. Well, no, that's a it's a great point, and I think as we we're in this. I don't know shifting era of recovery. I think in terms of uh, you know raising the bottom and positive psychology and that type of thing. I think that kind of fits in it that one size doesn't fit all, yes. right? And we have to be careful about that. You know, Steve and Pam Moore talk a lot about that, uh, you know, natural pathways to recovery, one size doesn't fit all. Let's, everybody's not predictable, right? Yes. So even in that sense of what you're talking about of the facet of employment after addiction, um, and certainly you you can easily hear it today, you're coming through the lens of a, Type three, right? Yes. And so you even corrected yourself in a moment ago, you know, maybe that's more for people more like my style, but it's probably universally true too, to find something that you really love or want, or at least you think you can have purpose in advance. Yeah. But you also, we also recognize, you know, sometimes when you're starting over, I don't know, sometimes you do take what you can get for a while. Maybe there's humility in that. Maybe there's self-esteem. Maybe there's whatever. But we're all learning that people have a commonality, but they're very unique at the same time. And so recovery is unique. Yes. That makes sense. It does. Yeah. That's, a, that's like a, at BRC, everything we do is is very individualized. It's not a cookie cutter, one size fits, you know, fits all pro- program. Yeah. Um, because recovery is not a yeah. one size fits all program. Human beings are just unique. There is yes, a commonality. We all share common yeah. things. We can count on those. 
But then there, we're so unique at times, we do need someone that can actually recognize that. Not play to our narcissism. That's a, that's a different story. But at least look to see, dig a little bit to see where is that human being that I'm in relationship with in recovery and treatment, counseling, sponsoring, whatever it is. There's a uniqueness there that was created in them, and I need to kind of help them with that, yeah. see it. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. yeah. It does. That's good. All right, so you get last word here, okay, as we wrap up. We'll, we'll have you back. Actually, we need to get John on. Oh, yeah. Right, hear his story. Let him tell the truth about you, right? <laughs> and uh, are y'all coming together? Uh, so if you had anything, you just one thing you'd kind of like to say to anybody that might be listening out there that's either – looking for recovery, uh, a process, a place, uh, a family member, whatever, just anything that you could think of that you might say to, to give them hope or purpose or vision. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, man, you know, one thing, I guess I, what I'd really like to, is if you, people out there, family members, um, their, their loved ones, uh, people struggling with addiction, anything, the whole nine yards. What what me and John, if you call Birmingham Recovery Center, you get me or John on the phone. Uh, we are the ones who answer the phone. Um, we do free consultations. Yeah. Uh, that is, a, like I was saying earlier, this is, you know, I've, I've experienced good treatment. I've experienced not good treatment. The whole treatment world is a very complicated yeah, there's a continuum and a spectrum. Yeah, there is. And One of the things I've noticed about you is you're trying to remove as many barriers as you can at the beginning. We right? do. Yeah. It's, it's a complicated world, you yeah. know, and figuring yeah. out what's a good fit for my life. Where should I go? Who do I call? Da, 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 is da, insurance just, involved? You know, and, people yeah. usually go to Google, and, and Google sometimes is not the best place to go for this. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's you can call BRC whether you come to BRC or not. We, we, we help people get to where they need to be. Yep. Uh, sometimes that's not BRC. We're not always a great fit for everybody. Yep. Uh, but we will we'll help people for free navigate this world, figure out what's going to be best for them or their loved one, help them get to where they need to be. Um, yeah, so I would, I would we, we, are, we are always available great. for people for that. Yeah. How would people find you? Uh, is, is it easier to get you through the website or an email or phone number? Yeah. What are you willing to put out there? Cause there may be somebody hearing this that goes, you know, I'm in Huntsville. I could help them. Yes. So or I'm local and I know somebody or whatever. You can find us at, at www.birminghamrecoverycenter.com. Uh, That's and our, simple enough. Right. Yeah. yeah. And our, uh, our number is 205-813-7400. Great. Yeah. Colin, a congratulations on three years. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Love you. Love what you guys are doing. And uh, we'll have you back, okay? I like it. All right, Thank great. you, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, folks, thanks for joining us uh, for this episode of How's That Working For You? And we will see you next time.